For marketing agencies and social media managers looking to prove the value of their work, I've got something special for you. Agora Pulse is not only Social Media Examiner's tool of choice as an all-in-one social media management tool, it also allows you to track the traffic, conversion, and revenue from every social post, comment, and private message. Learn how to prove your social media ROI with a free training or a free trial by visiting agorapulse.com SME today. Again, agorapulse.com SME. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know how to navigate the ever-changing marketing jungle. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Melina Palmer. We're going to explore how to understand the brain and how it can build your business using a concept known as behavioral economics. By the way, I am at Stelzner on Facebook, at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter slash X. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Melina Palmer. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Melina Palmer. If you don't know who Melina is, she's the founder of Brainy Business, a consultancy designed to help small and mid-sized businesses increase their sales. She's also author of What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You. And her newest book is The Truth About Pricing. She also hosts the Brainy Business Podcast. Melina, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Today, Melina and I are excited to explore the understanding of how the brain can help your business. And Melina, you are such an expert in this concept of behavioral economics. And we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff that I think is going to fascinate people. But before we go there, I would love to hear a little bit about your backstory. How'd you get into marketing? How'd you get into behavioral economics? Start wherever you want to start. Sure. Well, I had originally, you know, the plan, I was going to go to school for musical theater. And uh, then at some point I decided to be practical. And after, you know, looking around for things, marketing felt like a good fit. It was still creative, I guess, and ended up uh, getting my undergrad in marketing from the University of Washington. And while I was in that program, there was just this one section of one book in one class, like a tiny little sliver of something that was talking about buying psychology, like why people do the things they do and buy the things they buy. And I thought it was just the most amazing, fantastic thing I had ever seen. And I hadn't really thought about higher education for me at that point as a you know first generation in my family to go to college, but I'm going to go back. I'm going to get a master's in this. I, I was so excited about it. And I spent the better part of 10 years calling schools asking about programs, and they all said it didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. There wasn't an option for me. And it was unfortunate, but I ended up, you know, I was just working in marketing for, you know, about a decade and brand strategy and ended up getting introduced to behavioral economics, which as a marketer, I was like, 
economics, nuh-uh, right? <laughs> but truly, this is the space that I have found that is into the psychology of why people buy and got into applied behavioral economics and helping customers to buy and employees to buy in. And, you know, that's kind of the short version of the long story. So were you ever able to find a, a master's program that, or did you just? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So yes, I got my master's in behavioral economics from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. And I now teach applied behavioral economics via the Human Behavior Lab at Texas A&M University, in addition to the other work that I do to help people in business to be able to see and understand what behavioral economics even is and behavioral science, how our brains really work and how we can communicate more effectively with everyone, right? So people you're working with, if you're trying to get a change through or a project, you have the customer, client, member, whatever on the other side that you want to buy something and to help them to want to engage and feel excited about it. That really is possible when you understand the way that the brain really makes decisions. Similar story, both you and me were the first in our family line to get a college degree and the first to get a master's degree. When you graduated, you obviously somehow went off and started your own business. So tell us a little bit about how you were able to take what you learned in grad school and ultimately apply it to what you're doing today. Yeah, it was interesting the way the timing worked. So I was planning to stay in industry throughout, right? And I had been doing some freelance work on the side while I was running a marketing department. And things just sort of lined up that right around the time that I started my master's program is when I stepped aside and started doing freelance work full-time, making that my job as a consultant. And I really felt like the work I was doing was going to be, and what I was learning about in behavioral economics was just going to enhance the marketing work, you know, I was going to do for people. And through the process of the program, I found that while I knew I was early in behavioral economics, I didn't realize how early and especially on the applied side, because the field was really, really, really academic at that point. And it still is pretty academic, but you have more people doing applied behavioral economics now. And in that space, everything that was so clear to me about how this applies to the way people make decisions and how we sell things and how to better communicate and brand strategy just wasn't anywhere. Nobody was really talking about it at that time. And that turned into this kind of realizing for one thing that my business needed to pivot and be really going all in on behavioral economics first and brain science and things like that. What year was that, by the way? So I started then my podcast in 2018. Okay. I started the program 2017. And in 2018, the podcast ended up being kind of a first foray into rebranding the company changing the way that I had been doing my approach and changing the name of my business. And in that, just jumped all in. And I didn't realize, too, that my podcast was the first really of its kind in the world. And I got in there just right at the perfect moment that people were really starting to be researching, you know, and looking for podcasts on behavioral economics, psychology and marketing and behavioral science. And mine was the only one really to find. And so it grew really quickly and gained a lot of interest and that all really took off. So the podcast started before I even finished my master's degree. And it was cool because like with Texas A&M, they reached out super, super early, like episode 18 or something. 
and said, hey, we love your show. We have all our doctoral students listen to it for them to understand and get a foundation of what behavioral economics even is and how to use it in their research. And thanks for the work you're doing. And, you know, by having good communication with them, I went and took a tour of the lab and it turned into, you know, creating the certificate program and on and on. So today, tell us about what kind of customers you work with, you know, outside of what you do with the university and, you know, a little bit more about like, you've written a couple of books as well, right? Along the, along the way. Yeah. Three books in three years. So just, you know, books and books and books. Cranking them out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I'm having at least a moment of pause. The, the third book just came out last week as when we're recording. So uh, we'll see. I haven't pitched the next one yet, but we'll see how long that takes. So the types of clients we work with is It's actually very vast because behavioral science and behavioral economics is so important for anyone in business. So I do a lot of speaking and keynotes and corporate trainings. And for me, helping people to understand what behavioral economics even is, why it matters, getting excited about it and feeling like they can go do something with it. A thing you can go apply right now, whether that comes from tips in the book or the podcast or a presentation uh, or training, I, I really love that spark of, oh my gosh, I never even knew. And that you can actually go tangibly do something is really my favorite. We work with small businesses as well as they're working on their brand messaging, looking at ways that they can be better pricing, right? So the new book is called The Truth About Pricing for that. Being able to just optimize the way that they're communicating so that people are naturally more likely to want to buy the thing that you want them to buy and for them to be happier about it. It's all really a win, win, win. Okay. So I know there's some people that are like, Mike, ask this question. What is defined behavioral economics? But this is going to be a two-part question. Define it simply. I think I kind of have a grasp for it and then go on to say why marketers ought to pay attention to it and why it's so important. Sure. So the easiest way that I like to say it is if traditional economics and psychology had a baby, we've got behavioral economics. That's the beginning piece. What's important about that, why it matters is because traditional economics had a problem in that it assumes logical people making rational choices in everything they do all of the time. And we're human, so we know that's not really the way that things work. So you end up with models that are set up to predict what someone or something believes people should do. We like to say should's a four-letter word around here. (laughs) But, (laughs) But it's not what people actually do, right? And what truly drives their behavior. So understanding what's really going on in the brain is most important. And so then to get into the piece of why this matters for marketers and for everyone is I want everyone to think about, you're listening now, think about how many decisions do you think you make on an average day? And, you know, Mike, if you want to throw in a guess here. At least 10, probably a lot more. I mean, I mean, actually, well, probably dozens if I start thinking about what am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner? Right? Right. Right. Yes. So research shows that on average, people make 35,000 decisions every single day. Wow. 35,000. And we remember, you know, 10, right? (laughs) 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 And this is the point, right? So you still were thinking about how did you make 
those decisions. Subconsciously, probably, right? Yes. And using habit, rules of thumb, things that have worked before. And so those, all those decisions are happening. And what research has found by having psychology and economics and neuroscience come together are the rules that that subconscious brain typically uses, what it's going to think, hey, this makes sense here, or I'm going to apply this. Those concepts become what we use as foundations of behavioral economics of how that subconscious brain is most likely to make a decision. And so if you understand that humans are loss averse, right, which intuitively we know in some ways, but we've kind of set it up wrong with a lot of buy 10, get one free and people like free stuff. So we'll give them more and more. But consciously we think, I hate when stuff is taken away. I would hate if things weren't available and were going to be taken away from me. So we should never message that way. But really, people are more likely to take an action when they feel like they're going to lose something because we're loss averse. And so where consciously, if you're creating the messaging, it feels bad and you would think that you would hate it. It can actually really drive and encourage behavior when you understand the rule and can implement it into the way that you frame your messaging. Wow, this is really fascinating. So we've had a number of people on the show, Robert Cialdini and others, and I'm forgetting all their names. And a lot of this stuff all kind of, I think, kind of mushes together in people's brains, right? Psychology, neuroscience, behavioral economics. From a behavioral economics perspective, is it because there's finances involved? Is that the key differentiator here between other kind of neuroscience kind of stuff? Because I think behavior, that part makes total sense. It's the economic side of it that I think maybe some of my listeners might struggle with wrapping their head around that. For sure. So I'm in the camp of if you feel better about saying behavioral science, fine. And the (laughs) terms are, in my opinion, reasonably interchangeable. There is some nuance within the field when you get really, really into it where people can be incredibly specific and make a point as to why they think it should be one name versus another. My actual degree is in behavioral economics. And so I use that term. And like I said, whether you're getting someone to buy something or you're trying to get someone to buy in an idea, you're still selling them on the idea, even if there isn't any money changing hands. And so in my opinion, all of the interactions that you're having on a regular basis are having to do with change, right? You're trying to get influence someone to get them to do something differently. Maybe there's money and an exchange of goods, or maybe it has to do with, again, getting buy-in on a project or something like that. That's my second book, What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You, is all about that change management side of things. And so all across the board, it's an economic type of a transaction, in my opinion. But again, if people like to say behavioral science, I support it. Okay, cool. Hopefully that's a good setup for what we're about to talk about. We're going to spend the rest of today's interview really talking about concepts that everyone who's listening can put to work in their career, specifically from a marketing perspective. Let's first talk about the first behavioral economics concept that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of them, but what's the first concept? And we're going to define this and and really give some examples so everybody can wrap their head around it. Yeah, absolutely. So in What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, I cull down from hundreds of concepts to 16 main ones. 
And we're not going to go through all 16 today, but the first one very intentionally is called framing. And framing is what I think is most important for people and one of the easiest things you can start to implement in behavioral science. So in this case, framing is that how you say something matters more than what you say. So we've got another kind of thought experiment here. Imagine you're going to the grocery store, you need to buy some hamburger, it's spaghetti night tonight. You go and there are two stacks. They're almost identical. The only difference is one is labeled as being 90% fat free and the other as 10% fat. Now, (laughs) our listener, right, which one do you want to buy and Mike, which one do you want? Well, I mean, you know, it's fascinating. I laughed when we originally talked about this and we were prepping for this. Nobody wants 10% fat, <laughs> right? Even though they're exactly the same, right? Right. Logically, we know they're the same, but they feel completely different. Like you said, 90% fat free is like, ooh, pat on the back. Good choice, me. And, you know, 10% fat, you're like, ugh, I haven't been to the gym in two years. It's terrible, <laughs> right? Again, it's the same, but we hear it very differently and it influences the choice that we're going to make, what you feel good about. And even if you say, oh, I'm not going to be persuaded by that, but I'm still going to pick off of this stack, right? So what's really good in the space of marketing and knowing that even if people haven't been buying a particular product or service that you know is a really great thing for them, it doesn't mean that the product is necessarily wrong. It doesn't mean your pricing is wrong. You might just be talking about it as 10% fat. And if you look at the way that you could reframe that message as 90% fat free, it could make it so it's way more appealing to people. And There's also an opportunity if you look at your industry, if you're in an industry where everyone's talking in those 10% fat terms, how could you be the one person that's saying 90% fat free version? People naturally are going to want to buy more from you, even if you're really saying the same thing, people hear it differently. And so there's an opportunity to just flip the frame here and there all over the place to be more effective. Well, you know, we're going to talk about some more examples, but one that comes to mind is like commercials on television shows, right? So you could say there's usually about 15 minutes of commercials, right? In in an hour long TV show. (laughs) So you could say like 75% commercial free, right? Or you could say 15 minutes of commercials, right? Right. (laughs) And obviously nobody wants 15 minutes of commercials. I mean, But I know we've come up with some other examples to help people figure out how to use this language. Because I think if you're used to using language that obviously isn't properly framing, then you're not going to know whether you're framing incorrectly, right? So let's talk about some kind of frameworks, for lack of better words, that we can use. (laughs) Absolutely. So I have three simple reframes that I always recommend people can start with because you can just go pick and choose and find them. The first is going from if to when. We say if a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And it's just sort of this, if you're interested, I'm here, right? You're kind of out in the ether. Versus when you're interested, I'm here. Right. right? When you're ready, here's the link, right? Or whatever. Why does that work? Well, it has this implied that people have been here before. There's the next step in the process. It's helping to nudge them along in seeing instead of like, hey, if you have questions, let me know. Or like when you're ready, it's saying, oh, 
well, I'm going to be ready. Am I ready now? Right. It makes you kind of think through the process in a little different way. So with your emails, how often are you saying, if you have questions, let me know if you want to meet, here's this. And if you can think about it as the, the next thing is happening and here's what you should do next when you're ready. I'll give you an example. We do this in our emails when I write a lot of our emails for social media marketing world. Instead of saying, if you decide to attend, this is what will happen. I say, when you attend, this is what you'll experience. Right. And I don't know why that seems to make a difference, but it does kind of help set a inevitability in the brain of the person that they're going to attend someday. Right. And it seems to be more persuasive. Right. And we have mirror neurons in the way that we experience things like unboxing videos and things like that. It seems silly that those even matter. Our brain also takes ownership, perceived ownership over things really quickly. We have endowment effect. There there are lots of nuances of things happening in our brain at any given time with those, you know, 35,000 decisions. And layering that in, again, when you can get someone to imagine you're here this is happening, you've made it, right? Our brain is now excited and believes that we go to this type of thing, right? I'm the type of person that goes to social media marketing world, of course. And when I'm there, this is gonna happen. My brain is now taking ownership over this experience and we know it's loss averse, so it doesn't wanna give up that idea of who we can be and what it means to be me, the ideal version of myself. And I'm gonna do what I can to preserve that. And that tiny little reframe. I love it. Is doing so much right behind the scenes and understanding those again nuances in the brain is really really powerful. Yeah, tell us you said you had three total reframes here. Yes. Yep. So the second one would be to go from anyone to everyone. So we are also a herding species, just like cows and sheep and guppies, and we feel safety with the herd. This is why things like social proof, testimonials, five-star ratings and reviews really matter to us when we're making a decision about something, especially when we haven't done it before. If you say anyone, or when you say anyone, right, it's not a very compelling, it's, hey, hey, if anyone's interested, Here's the information versus for everyone who's ready, right? So like when I have a guest on the Brainy Business Podcast, I don't say if anyone wants a copy of Mike's book, you know, there's a link in the show notes, right? I say for everyone who's so excited to get your copy of Mike's book, there's a link waiting for you in the show notes, right? Again, for everyone who's ready and excited, it's here for you. That's an option, right? And so anyone, everyone is something that helps us to feel like it's safe and everyone is doing this thing and we're part of that group. I like that everyone, the for everyone was the missing piece, right? For everyone who feels this way, right? For everyone who wishes this was true, right? I kind of like that a lot. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and the nice thing is for anyone who's not a part of that everyone, you can then have another, like a follow-up message, right? So for everyone who's this, there's this. For everyone who's over here, there's this, right? If you needed to follow up, like it leaves it in this space of inclusivity that's really feeling safe and kind of taken care of there. So our third reframe is to go from ending on a period or a statement to a question. And our brains are just really naturally set up to look at questions in a different way and we feel compelled to answer them. And so anytime you want someone to be more likely to respond to your email, I recommend ending it in a question 
or putting questions into your marketing language. It's really powerful to use when you're trying to get that call to action, like ready for the next step, click here, right? That it makes us think about something like I am ready, right? We're, we're getting that little buy-in along the way. Times where we have people that uh, send you an email and you think, uh, I don't know that I, I'm super jazzed about this thing, end those in a statement. <laughs> and then if they're excited about it, they may be more likely to respond and you can then work on the project. But in marketing, you get pitched on stuff all the time, right? And if you're not quite sure if you're interested, you can end in a statement. And when you're really excited about it, you can end on those questions. So again, instead of saying, if you want to meet, let me know, or I'm ready, let me know a time that works for you. You can put a couple of times available to say, okay, we're available Tuesday at four. Does Tuesday at four o'clock work for you? Mm, I like that. Someone may then say, oh, I can't, but they're not likely to just let that hang, right? They're probably going to say, I can't do Tuesday at four, but I could do three we feel like we're going to answer versus, hey, let me know what works for you next week and we'll get something on the calendar. That can just sit in my email forever. You've created a bunch of work for me. Whereas if you ask a question, I can say no, but you know, people want to respond. Well, and I think that helps the brain, like you said, know what to do. And like in, on social posts, I do this all the time. I'll end with a question like, what do you think? I'd love to hear from you, you know, or I'd love to hear from you. What do you think would probably be better to end on that very question. All right. So we've talked about reframing. This is the first concept in behavioral economics. What's the next one? Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. Yeah. So our next concept here is one of priming, which is that something that happens just before a decision point is going to have an impact on the choice that someone makes. And it can be things that you think are really small and arbitrary and shouldn't matter. But really what we find when it comes to our brains and behavioral economics is that everything matters. So we want to be thoughtful about all of these little things. So here's an example from a research study that was done. People were going into a building to participate in this study. On their way in, they bumped into somebody who was holding a bunch of papers and things, and then they dropped them all and said, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Can you hold this really quickly while I pick these up? Half of the people were given a hot drink to hold for a moment while the person picked up their papers, the other half an iced drink, and then they you know, went on their way didn't realize this had anything to do with the experiment they were going to be a part of, but that person was in on it. And then those people were to, you know, remember like in fourth grade when you had to read about somebody, you know, a paragraph, and then you would circle words about their personality or explain what their personality was like, that sort of thing. That was the type of test they did in this. Those who held that ice drink completely unrelated didn't know it had anything to do with it, were much more likely to rate the person as being cold, distant, and difficult than those who held the hot drink. And we have other instances of word choice impacting, you know, when you had a, a scramble that had words like old and bingo in Florida, people walked slower out of the room than <laughs> those who had unrelated or words that were rude were more likely to interrupt somebody than those who had polite words. It, people working in a room that had a backpack were more cooperative than people with a, in a room with a briefcase. All these very literal associations that the brain makes 
mean. It's so important. A picture is not just a picture on your website or in your ad, right? And if you put a red rose on an ad in December, it's different than on February 13th. It's very different on February 14th. And February 15th, for someone who didn't get anything, right, they may be really mad about this at this other time. The images you choose, the words you use are going to impact the decision someone makes, even if they can't explain that it had an impact. So you want to understand those associations and what it is that you want to prime them to do. This is really fascinating because I've had so many different people on the podcast that talk about all this stuff. And some of it is you know, like, like, for example, Cialdini, when he wrote Persuasion on the show, talked about how putting certain kinds of quotes at the beginning of an email could kind of get the person who's reading the email into a different frame of mind. Like, for example, aspirational quote at the beginning of an email would increase the likelihood that someone might be seeking learning, you know, or in a particular area. And I've also had people on the show that have done commercials for charities, and they've talked about how putting certain kinds of images in the commercial can impact the likelihood that someone decides to contribute to the charity. There's a side of me that's like a little bit of this can kind of feel like manipulation, but the other side of it is like priming the pump. Conceptually, I understand it. What are some practical things that we can do maybe with the written word? For example, maybe telling a story. I don't know. Like what's an example of this that marketers could try? Because obviously they're not gonna they're not gonna have the cold drink, warm drink example that they can they can use on their <laughs> prospects, you know? Yeah. Oh, and first I do also want to address, like you're saying, on the ethics side of things and and making sure so because this is always a question that comes up and it's an important one. So for one, is I always I truly believe that knowledge in the hands of evil can do evil no matter what it is, right? So we want to be thoughtful about what what it is that we're doing and know that people can use things for bad if they really want to. In the case of behavioral economics, behavioral science, what we know is what you're doing, how you put information, the ordering you have of items on a list, let's say, whether it's random, it's alphabetical, reverse alphabetical, it's by seniority, it will impact the choice that someone makes, whether you think about it or not. And in my opinion, it's always better to be thoughtful to what it is that you're doing. And in the case of behavioral economics, we only work in the space of nudging, where a nudge is people always have free choice. They can do something else and none of it is going to hypnotize you into buying something you don't need or, or what that is. People can still make the choice to do something else, but it's just helping to frame things in a way that hopefully is getting the best thing that someone really needs in a way that they can see that it would be valuable to them. What I find is people have a hard time communicating really amazing ideas that would actually help the other person on the other side. And so when you can showcase it in a way that gets that person excited, it can be a real win-win for everyone. In the case of some priming that you can be using in your marketing, getting all the senses involved is really, really powerful. And even if it is just on a website, in the case of something where we think about uh, scent marketing, and this is not getting to a website, but I love this example of at a gas station, they wanted to increase coffee sales at the gas station, right? common problem. And you think, okay, well, we have to put out an ad on the pump and people are ignoring it because they're looking at their phones or whatever else. 
they had the scent of coffee coming out at the pumps and it increased the sales of coffee by 300%. Wow. Well, and I know at Disneyland, they do this kind of stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you think about the bakery, like the bakery has the, that amazing, the cookies or the bread that's out there or ice cream shops where you can smell the waffle cones yeah, being yeah. made, right? It, it pulls you in, in my framework is called, it's not about the cookie when it comes to selling. And so, but that scent that draws you in is, is priming, right? And so the word choice that you use, the imagery that you have, I mentioned something like an unboxing video or explaining how something works, showing and walking someone through the process that is helping them to experience what it's like being in that moment and getting excited. A question I get a lot is like, how do we make sure people know it's expensive without saying, hey, you know, real interested people only. So we don't have a bunch of tire kickers, you know, calling us and we have to be pitching for projects that are never going to work out. So a priming word you could use is something like investment. This investment in yourself or your company is is so valuable and people have said whatever, right? That then investment though is a word that kind of primes us to think this is going to cost me something, right? And people may naturally sift out in that process and it helps increase the likelihood that someone who does get to you is primed and ready with the idea of investing in themselves, which is just better all along the way. You know, something that we do in our marketing for social media marketing world is close-up pictures of people smiling. And we used to do a lot more pictures of the crowds and we started instructing our photographers to get in close on small groups of people, smiling, engaging, interacting. And we have tons of these pictures. And when I started putting those pictures in the emails and then I coupled them with a strong testimonial that kind of seemed to go with the picture, even though it wasn't exactly the same person, I do feel like it gave people the sense that this is what they might experience if they were there. Right. Yeah, for sure. And you're getting that power of a really strong testimonial that helps me to feel like it fits. One tip for testimonials that I always give is you don't have to use the entirety of what someone said when you're going to share a testimonial. I always encourage to people to think about it like a movie trailer. Right. It's like amazing, fantastic best experience ever, must attend, right? If you can pull out that thing, that is so much more compelling to someone who is experiencing and seeing those testimonials than, wow, this was a really amazing experience and I enjoyed being there. I I would say it's a must attend for everyone. That's so buried in the language. We're never going to get it. Right, right. But you could say must attend for everyone. You could just trim that part in, right? Absolutely. Okay, and, that, and by the way, that gets the everyone part in there too, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, what's your next anchoring? I mean, I'm serious. What's your next concept? I might've just given it away. <laughs> hey, that's all right. This one is called anchoring. Right. And while it's not just about numbers, this is the best way to explain the concept. So it's one that it's really powerful where our brain will lock in on a number and move up or down from that spot. So another fun game, just because I, I like to do these, is to ask our listeners to think, do you think there are more or less than 100,000 penguins in Antarctica? Probably more. More? Okay. All right. So if it's not then 100,000, we'll have our listener take a moment there and see what they think. But if it's not 100,000 and you said more, you know, what do you think? What's the number? Give me a guess. 
A million. Okay. Woo. A million penguins. And we'll see what our listeners think too in their own minds. There are actually about 12 million penguins in Antarctica. So even though you were, you know, stretching up, it's much higher than that, right? Ah, and I know where you're going with this. Yeah. If you said there was a million, I would have guessed 10, probably, right? Or what if I had asked you if there were more or less than a billion penguins? Ah, I'd say less for sure. <laughs> but your number probably would have been still much higher. You would have said, I don't know, 500 million, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Way on this other side, right? So our brains are super lazy. And when we put out things like numbers, it can impact the decision that someone's going to make. And so we're going to combine all our concepts here in this example. It was a really cool study that was done with Snickers bars at the grocery store. So they had end cap displays. Half of them said Snickers, buy them for your freezer. The other said Snickers, buy 18 for your freezer. We could all probably agree 18 is more Snickers bars than anyone is probably buying at any given time. And if you were setting up the ad for this, you may feel a little hesitant to put a number like that on your ad. It feels arbitrary. You don't want to have to back it up. Feels like a lot of Snickers, let's be honest. Right. Yeah, for sure. And we'd say like, oh, you know, and them, them's unlimited. People could get 100 if they wanted to blah, 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 all the ways we logic ourselves into the choice we feel better about. And you probably don't think it would have that much of an impact anyway, but it really did. And that's why we're talking about it. It had a 38% increase in sales when the number 18 was used instead of the word them. And there are a few things happening here. One, if we're walking down the you know grocery store aisle and them is there it's actually more of a fancy word for zero because we weren't planning on anything and you're having to kind of nudge your way up from nothing if they even notice your ad. But let's say they get two, right? Two Snickers bars from that. In the case of 18, that is kind of jarring. Our brain is saying, whoa, I don't have a rule for that. You know, uh, and we're paying attention. We say 18, I don't need that many. I'll just get six, right? We're coming down from the number that was presented and that has an impact on behavior. So how this ties in with framing is that the behind the statement, there's a subtle shift in the question that's being asked, right? So in the case of by them for your freezer, you're asking, would you like some Snickers? Do you want any? Hello, anyone, would you like a Snickers bar? In the case of 18, you're asking how many do you wanna buy? slight reframe that makes a difference and the anchor serves as a prime that impacts the choice that someone is going to make. This is fascinating because in our marketing for the conference, I'll often say, get your tickets instead of get your ticket, which I think is probably priming them to buy more than one, but I'm not anchoring in this particular case, right? Like if I was wiser, I'd probably say like, get three tickets, one for you, one for your client and one to give away to a friend. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm just throwing it out there, but is that how we could do something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And this, so when you think about buying like cans of soup at the grocery store, if it says there's a discount, let's say it's like 10 cents off or something. In the case that it is just, yay, 10 cents off all the cans of soup, people buy, you know, three or whatever it is. And if you have limit 10. Oh yeah. Because all of a sudden they're like, wow, people buy 10. I better buy 10. Right. And it's limited at 10. It must be a great deal. I got to throw them in there. Right. And so putting a number on that limit increases the number that people are end up buying. 
in that case, even though it was unlimited in the other scenario, that number anchor makes a difference in the way that someone chooses to buy. So you could have a, you know, this sale price is limited to this. this we're saying that, you know, first hundred people get whatever this is, uh, or like you said, in the case of tickets, you have a, a great deal, you know, yeah. limited. Well, and I'm already thinking if we didn't already print all the signs because we sell tickets on location, right. For next year. I mean, we should have had a limit 10 on the sign. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because then we would have had people buy in 10 <laughs> or, or more than <laughs> one. That's that, for sure. Right? You know, yeah. Dang, marketing <laughs> department. I hope you're listening. Okay, cool. What's the next concept? So the next one is a favorite. It's called relativity looping things in. And we think about how we present the offer makes a big difference. So this case, we're going to imagine you're going in to a store to buy a couch and you see one that you really like and you say to the sales staff, oh, hey, how much is this couch? And they say, it's $900. Oh, my mistake, $700. Okay, got that in our head. Rewind, same store, same couch, same everything. You say, hey, how much is this? And they say, oh, it's $500. Oh, sorry, my mistake, it's $700. The couch was never $900 or $500 but we feel incredibly different about it in the two scenarios based on the first number that came out, which acted as either a high or a low anchor on how we felt about the ultimate price that got into our mind, right? At $900 anchor, felt like 700 was a good deal. 500, you kind of felt, maybe I should go look for some cheaper options, right? So when we think about pitching a price, we're putting information out there, the big mistake people make is they tend to start low and then you work your way up to whatever the most expensive offer is. And then you now have a low anchor that people aren't going to get up to typically what you think is the best choice for them. So you always want to flip that, start high, work your way down. And whatever you really think someone should buy, what you want them to get should not be the most expensive thing because you need a wingman that's going to come first. Its job is to help the best offer look really good that has a higher price than that. Some people may want it. That would be great. But most people are going in for that best offer. And it now feels even better because you started with that high anchor, which is more expensive relative to the thing you're looking to sell. Okay. So let's say I'm shopping for an appliance for my house, right? Because my washer broke hypothetically, right? And the salesperson says, this is $2,000, but today it's on sale for $1,400. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, that is a version where you can you can use a sale price. You know, the original price is something that can be your anchor for that uh, to help relatively feels like a good deal. Whereas if you just say, oh, it's 1400 bucks, you know, if you would have been here yesterday or tomorrow, it'll be 2000. It doesn't feel the same as when you, you know, start with that piece going into it. Another way is when you go into the electronic store, there's probably a machine and maybe not a washing machine, but like a TV, right? There's a really expensive TV at the front of the store. Right. And then when you get to the TVs at the back, like, so you notice that it had a big tag on it, it's $8,000 or something, right? <laughs> and you get into the back and you see the one that's 1400 and it feels relatively better because we were anchored on this bigger number. And you think about what's on the slider or your homepage of your website or the ad that you're sending and what is that going to do for when people get into 
their buying experience from you. And so it can be being thoughtful about discount percentages or a certain amount of money that's off. You can be thinking about what that relative thing is that's out there first. That's going to be interesting enough to prime and pull them in. That's going to then make it so they're ready to buy and making sure we're not getting into any sort of bait and switch problem that can can happen. You know, we're putting information out into the world. You don't want to talk about how everything is up to 70% off. We've all seen these sorts of things, right? And then you get into the store and there isn't, there's maybe one thing that was 70% off that's terrible that nobody ever wanted anyway, right? So you don't want to anchor on those big things if you're not going to live true and help them to feel elated when they get in there. You know, I think about software pricing a lot where you see these different tiers of software and almost always I see the cheapest tier on the left and the most expensive one on the right. But it seems to me as if you're saying to flip it, put the most expensive one first, right? Or no. So (laughs) if we were starting from the beginning of time and just starting to create these charts, yes, potentially. But we are all now programmed to think to look to the right, to the most expensive one, and we work our way back. And our eyes kind of zigzag as we look at things too, when we look at eye tracking and things. So when you're going for a chart, I do recommend the most expensive one being on the right, at least in Western culture and where we're used to seeing these, some other cultures that may be a little bit different. But we see the chart on the right, that's where we look to go most expensive, and we're going to work our way back. When you are putting things in a stack, say you're sending an email or you have a brochure with prices and you're explaining things, then you would want the most expensive one at the top and you're going to work your way down to get in and make sure that that anchor comes first. Wow. This has been really fascinating, Melina. If people want to connect with you on the socials, where do you want to send them? And if they want to check out your business, where should they go for that? Well, thank you so much. On all the socials, you can really find me as The Brainy Biz, B-I-Z, and as Melina Palmer on LinkedIn. And the best place to go to find out about the books, the podcast, consulting, speaking, would be going to thebrainybusiness.com. And of course, if you go to thebrainybusiness.com slash S-M-E, you can check out a free chapter of any of my books to see if they're a good fit for you and other tidbits there for you. So go to thebrainybusiness.com slash S-M-E. Melina Palmer, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. We're so much better because of it. Oh, thanks for having me. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 602. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a longtime listener, we'd let your friends know about this show. I'm at Stelzner on Facebook, at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter slash X. And by the way, we do have other shows. Be sure to check out the Marketing Agency Show and the Social Media Marketing Talk Show. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. We'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may your marketing keep evolving. Catch you next time. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter, We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.